over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. We are in this series we're calling the big book cover to cover, and this morning we'll look at the little letter called 1 Timothy. These are sometimes called pastorals. We have 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus precisely. Some will include the 1st and 2nd Thessalonican letters as well. But most specifically these three letters are, is written to a person, which is unique in the way we've read Pauline literature so far. It's to the believers in Philippi, to the believers in Colossae, to the believers in Rome, to the churches in Rome. Now we're seeing a letter written to an individual and so it's important to keep that in mind. Timothy was younger and more than likely that means in his 40s not like a 20-year-old at that particular time. He was a disciple. He was a protege. He was Paul's spiritual son in many, many ways. He was one that Paul picked, that God gave Paul to instruct and teach and as the disciple to turn him loose on leading the churches that they had planted. Um, This is a message that was written to Timothy while he's in Ephesus. It's about the Ephesian church first and foremost. We've already looked at the letter to the church at Ephesus. And now this is sort of the the behind-the-scenes leadership structure of what the young Timothy was supposed to be doing with this group of people who were part of the church and probably more than one location church is in Ephesus. It deals with an interesting array of problems. We'll touch on some of them, not all of them. It's a strong letter. It's direct. It's candid. At times it's sort of like, you know, the short hairs are when they grab you by the short hairs on the back of your neck. Uh, Other times, but it's loving. It's kind. It's gentle but firm. And it's a unique piece of literature that uh, pastors have gone back to again and again and again. Churches go back to again and again and again because of this pastoral influence. Here is the refresher of Paul. Who is he and why is he doing this? Most of us know this, but it's always good to be reminded. He's the elder statesman apostle. He's revered. He's brilliant. And he's writing his protege. He's writing his younger friend, Timothy. Uh, he was born in Tarsus uh, on the border of the Lebanese border of modern Turkey today. And he is a Roman citizen, which is an interesting combination. He's a brilliant man. When we talk about the law in the New Testament, when we speak of Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees, uh, don't think of them as just rabbis in robes. Think of them as legal scholars. Think of them as, as men who went to law school, so to speak. But the law, of course, was the Jewish law. So these are scholars. These aren't you know, your typical pastor. This isn't your typical also ran, you know, wannabe theologian like me. These are scholars who spent their entire life from childhood up to be trained in the scriptures uh, to know the word of God. Um, as a prominent Jewish leader, he has got power. And it is in that experience where God gets a hold of him, blinding him, 
Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he transforms a zealous man with credentials to kill Christians, to arrest Christians, to bring them back to Jerusalem. He confronts him on the road, so-called road to Damascus, and that's where Saul becomes Paul and is transformed into a leader for the church of Jesus Christ. It's an irony, it's rich, it's wonderful that he picks a Jewish Jew, a legal scholar, we might call a Bible theologian scholar, he picks him to reach Gentiles. Not the Jewish world, but primarily the Gentile world. And as we mentioned in Acts, when we talked about Acts 1-8, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest part of the earth. That message that God gave the disciples from Pentecost fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest part of the earth. You and I are the remotest part of the earth, guys. Where the gospel has gone around the globe because this man Paul literally was the man who did what we call these missionary journeys. And he is emboldened, he's strong, he's tough as nails, he's indomitable, and he takes the gospel on what we call three missionary journeys. And the second and third journey he's going to end up in Ephesus for a period of time. And that's when this church is planted that he is writing uh, to Timothy about. Now keep in mind in the backdrop, because it's important to know context, what's happening in the big picture. The backdrop here, Nero is in control, but he's about to lose control. And this is written right about that time period when Nero's regime is starting to falter. Uh, Paul's going to be beheaded right about this time period as well. Uh, So that's sort of who we're talking about. This is the elder statesman Apostle Paul who brings all the credibility of an eyewitness of Jesus Christ, called by Christ, chosen by Christ, performed some of the works of Christ, and he was given to instruct and teach and point Timothy in the right direction to hand the baton. A little bit about Ephesus the city. Of course we looked at the letter already, but just to remind you, it was an Aegean seaport. Um, If you've been to Israel, you remember an area called Bet Chan, and Bet Chan is one of the larger excavations, and you can spend days there if you go to Ephesus, it's about 15 times bigger than Bet Shan, what's been excavated, and much more there. Uh, it boasted one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, which was the temple of Artemis or Diana, Artemis or Diana. It also boasted the largest library in the world, which is interesting to think about, which would also feed why it was a place for scholars to go to and want to learn. And as a major city under the pressure of the Roman Empire, uh, Ephesus had this unique relationship. Rome, in some respects, was it was kind of like America uh, earlier. You could practice your faith and religion without fear of persecution, as long as it didn't disrupt the government. And that was essentially how Rome began. But Nero is going to change all that in the pages of history. Paul is aged, he's experienced, he's literally been around the ancient world now a couple of times, and so he's writing this younger pastor. Let's read from our friends uh, Bruce Wilkinson and um, Ken Boa from our book Talk Through the Bible we often refer to. Paul, the aged and experienced apostle, writes to young Pastor Timothy, who's facing a heavy burden of responsibility in the church at Ephesus. The task is challenging. False doctrine must be erased, public worship safeguarded, and mature leadership developed. In addition to the conduct of the church, Paul talks pointedly 
about the conduct of the minister. I love the turn of phrase there. The conduct of the church and the conduct of the minister. They continue, Timothy must be on his guard lest his youthfulness become a liability. For just a second, I totally disagree with that sentence, and I'll tell you why as we go forward. They're basically saying, Paul, needs, uh, Timothy, be on guard because you're young and you're impetuous and it's a liability. That's not what the book's about. You can write that in pen. I'll show you why. Rather than an asset to the gospel, he must be careful to avoid false teachers, agree, and greedy motives, pursuing instead righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness as befitting a man of God. So think back a little bit. We've got these Asian churches, and we might have different images when we think about that, but that's the geography of where these churches are, are being established. And this First Timothy almost becomes a manual for how to conduct a church. From how you pick leaders, the quality of leaders, how you deal with problems internally, how you deal with false teaching, the roles of men and women, your priorities as the local church, and even some strange things like taking care of widows. For such a short little book, it is full of practical theology uh, that the elder statesman apostle is saying, okay, we've got these, these beachheads established now. We've got churches around the area. Now, we've got to get them going. And we've got to keep them on track and on target. And that is the message of this little letter called 1 Timothy. I think 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5 is the purpose of the book. And so let's look at it on the screen. I'll read it for you. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So right at the beginning, it is an interesting goal and Many, if not most commentators, will talk about this verse. And some will agree with me, of course I'm right here, uh, that this is the point of the letter. The goal of our instruction is love. Now we need to talk about what love is and isn't, albeit very briefly. Um, but to love someone, to love the church in this situation, with a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. You put this together, you've got a unique formula for how you're to lead this precious treasure called the Church of Jesus Christ. Christians right now are challenged in every place on what we believe, and we're blamed for things we haven't done. It's not unique, but it seems harder right now. And I'm a cheery Michael Easley guy. I think it's going to be a lot worse. Uh, Christianity in our country today is about the only thing that you can vilify without fear of consequence. You can attack Christians. You can take a crucifix and put it in a bucket of urine and call it art. But don't do that with another religion or they'll burn your house down. So it's a unique time and an applicable book to say the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And he's going to be correcting Timothy, not on Timothy's actions, but what the church should be doing, not as heavy-handed as Corinthians, but this is a leader, we might call him an area bishop of these churches that they have been involved planting. Um, unfortunately, and I'm getting a little bit too far into application, but unfortunately, I think Western Christianity is, they're doing one of two things. We're capitulating to the culture 
or we're hiding and laying low because we're living in fear. And so it's easier to say, oh, okay, you know, I'm not going to fight that fight. You might be right. Or we're going to keep our mouth shut and try to keep out of trouble. Because God help you if you say something that is offensive to the modern sensibilities of our time. Um, love never means endorsing or sanctioning or encouraging sin. The caution is real. You instruct out of love, but sometimes instructing out of love. When we instruct someone, we can come heavy-handed, we can come with legalism, we can come judgmentally, or we can do it out of love. And all of us have both received uh, unloving instruction, we've given unloving instruction, even if it might be true, it's not been done with love and a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So this is the overarching theme of this book, I would argue. Um, the simple verse clarifies at least three things. The hope for outcome of instruction is love. I'm doing this because I love you. The posture, I got a pure heart. Not a bone to pick, not to show you're wrong, not to one-up you, but I've got a pure heart, which that's a big conversation. What's a pure heart? And the motivation, a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, what parent in this room would not acknowledge that you have overcorrected a child at least once in your whole parenting lifestyle? You've raised your voice. You've said things you wish you could retract. You have been angry. And maybe it was a righteous anger. You were right about what you were doing, but the way you did it was certainly not pure-hearted, good conscience, and sincere faith. Now, there's times we yell. You yell at a child if he or she's about to touch an open flame. You yell and scream at a child if they're walking out in the traffic. This isn't a time to be nicey-nice. This is a time to say, stop, your life is in danger. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the times you and I have lost it or we said unkind things or, or equally as bad, we've done nothing. So when you think about parenting, and it's, you know, parenting, I've told this many times, Cindy and I used to teach marriage conferences, which that's fine, but we taught parenting conferences and I've been repenting ever since. I will never teach another parenting conference again. If I do it, I'll be theory. Um, I think this is the overarching principle that Paul is telling Timothy. Tim, very simply, Timothy, I'm going to teach you what you've got to teach them. I'm going to do it lovingly, genuinely, pure heart, sincere faith. But this is the objective. I often tell younger pastors, and I've even said it in the sound booth many, many times, you know, being a pastor really is just a constant re-education of the same things you know. The Christian life is just a constant re-education of what you already know. If you grew up around the Bible and a good teaching church and a good home, you know most of these things. One of the dangers of the Bible church is the worship of insight and nuances and finding out secret meanings. Listen, I understand that. I'm guilty again and again and again. But it almost always comes back to, do you believe and behave based on what you know? Do you trust and obey? Because there's no other way. Timothy, you hold the key to false teaching. The key to false teaching is sound doctrine. Whenever any church or Bible study or group gets off track, sound doctrine is the solution. Not arguing, not heavy-handedness, not overcorrecting, but teaching. And when we look, at, we look at this younger Timothy in his 40s, 
and what he's up against. And the elder statesman Paul telling him, Timothy, you got to teach what I taught you, what Christ taught us, and stay the course. That's really the book in a nutshell. When you read through Pauline literature in the so-called pastorals, you're going to see the words prescribe, teach, pointing out, showing. Uh, He's going to talk about pay attention to, entrust these things to others. And if you look at the language of those things, what's he saying? Keep on telling them, prescribe and teach these things. Why? Because we all need to be constantly reminded and re-educated. There are certain things you got to do and you can't short shrift those or you're going to get bad information. When it comes to false teaching, the only solution is sound doctrine. So I'm giving you something. I'm entrusting you with this so that you'll know what to do and more importantly to hand that baton to the next generation. Now this passage then hinges to a very tough text. Let's look at it. By by modern present day culture, what I'm about to read is horrific. Verse 8, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Realizing the fact that the law was not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. For those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I mean there's so many landmines but when you come to the word homosexual, DEFCON 4, we're now in trouble. We're now going to be shut down. We're going to be told what we can and can't say. Is the Bible the very word of God or not? It just comes back to that simple question. So let's look at this passage a little bit. Number one, the law is good. And again, you, you know this. Uh, nothing I'm saying this morning is new to probably any of you. Law is good but it's for the unrighteous It's for those who aren't holy. It's for those that aren't following God, we might say, or for Christians living in sin. And it's a silly illustration. Remember, anytime a preacher uses an illustration, it's on three legs at best. It never stays on all four. Keep that in mind. So we know a stop sign and a speed limit. We know those things. And you've heard the story, right? A stop sign, if you come to a complete stop and you look both ways or all ways, if there was a police officer within range, he or she is going to, I mean, unless there's something else going on, your inspection or something, you know, or you were speeding when you came to the stop. I mean, for all intents and purposes, if you stopped at the stop sign, complete stop, you're going to be what? Left alone. If you're going on the highway and the sign says 70 and you're going 69 or 70 or whatever it is, and people are flying by you at 89. Yesterday, Cindy and I were coming from uh, where we live out in College Grove, uh, and this truck passed me. They had to be doing 100, because I'm doing 70 on the nose, and they went by me like I was standing still. And of course, where are the police then, right? That's what we always say. Who's keeping the law? The person driving 70. Who's violating the law? What told them they were violating the law? That sign. The law, what Paul is telling Timothy, is good. It's good. Because if you drive the speed limit, if you wear your seatbelt, if you come to a complete stop, if you obey the traffic regulations, you are less likely to get in trouble. Other people who don't obey the signs 
not only endanger themselves, but they what endanger other people. That's a it's a silly in a way, but it's a good way of thinking about the law of God. If you follow it, you're more apt to stay out of trouble. If you don't follow it, the consequences will come. And this passage is, is naughty. It's hard to read. Ungodly, sinners, unholy, profane. They kill their parents. We're fine with all that. Sure, those people should be punished for that. Immoral. Well, homosexuals. Well, now we got problems. Because the culture is being cooked. Now, there are so many people that work to dismantle the idea of sexual sins and it, it feels new. We have this ongoing stack of letters, LGBTQAI+. And I won't define them all. You can have fun looking them up today and see what they mean. Um, but it's interesting how we have worked so hard as a culture to embrace and accept. Time was, uh, you were called on the carpet if you didn't tolerate if you remember, if you're old enough, the last three or four election cycles, Christians were hateful. And they weren't family-friendly. They were hateful. And they were, and then all of a sudden were fascist, which people that use that word don't know what it means. And then we're you know, xenophobic. We hate other uh, people groups and so forth and so on. Misogynists, we hate women. And they stack all these terms up. And before long you're on your heels and you feel like, goodness, I can't say those words or I'm a hateful person. Um, the ideology of love and how it's been twisted in our culture is not new. It existed in the first century. It existed in the Old Testament. As the writer of Ecclesiastes opined, there's nothing new under the sun. We may think we're more sophisticated about all this, but there's nothing new under the sun. It comes back to three ground root principles. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, and the boastful pride of life. That's what happened with whatever that fruit was in the center of the Garden of Eden. And it's in 1 John, the same thing is true. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, boastful pride. Think about that. This is what I like to look at. This is what I want, lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, the passion of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. I can do what I want. That just doesn't a apply to sexual sin. That applies to any sin. Because we take our sin, we sanctify it, we endorse it, and we say, I can live a certain way because that's my identity. That's how I was made. And that is a logical line of reasoning in the culture, and it's leaked over into Christianity. The problem with this is, is we're living at a time in our country, in our history, in our little short abbreviated history here, where it's really becoming up to the surface, not unlike Rome and not unlike what Paul was dealing with in Ephesus. I don't know what the future is. I'm not a prophet and I'm not going to prognosticate. But we're seeing some interesting things. One of them is this thing called progressive Christianity. Some of you are well aware of it. Uh, some really good uh, female writers, which I'm thrilled. Uh, Jen Ostman, is that her name? Ostman is, is doing a good job tackling this in a kind way. But someone sent me this the other day from a church here in town that calls himself a progressive Christian church. And this is on their site. I'm not like taking notes out of their thing. The Bible isn't and the Bible is. The Bible isn't the Word of God. It is a product of our community. The Bible isn't self-interpreting. Rather, it's a library of text. The Bible isn't a science book. 
It's multivocal. The Bible isn't an answer or rule book. It's a human response to God. The Bible isn't inerrant or infallible. It's living and dynamic. Now, if you just take that on the surface, the Bible is just a piece of literature that has no more importance in life than Homer's Iliad Odyssey or Plato's Republic or the latest comic book you pick up on a Marvel superhero. I didn't believe this. I went and looked at their site and watched. They have about an hour video that they explain all this, and that's an hour you'll never get back. But if you want to listen to it, <laughs> go right ahead. They're putting it in print. This is your culture. We are frogs in the kettle. I'm not mad. I'm not going to go yell and scream. But this is what you are up against in your home, in your family, with your kids in public school systems, with your grandchildren. Kind of fun, isn't it? Don't let the world teach you theology. The remainder of chapter 1, Paul is going to identify his former sinfulness. He's not going to come at this uber-righteously and say, this is how you need to be like me. He's going to acknowledge his violence, his hatred, the way he acted in unbelief and what he did to the church of Jesus Christ. And then he does an identification. This is how we all are, is what he's saying. I'm just like you. So don't categorize any sin, low-hanging fruit, like we might pick on this and that sin. Sin is sin. You and I are just as guilty as any other sinner. I don't know who said it first, the ground at Calvary is level. Now there are sins that feel more egregious, murder and rape and you know, hurting a child. Those in our, in our view of a hierarchy, those are a lot worse than stealing some goods from you know, the internet or misusing a license on your computer or whatever. But the text is hard to dodge. Watch what he does in verse 18 after this tough section. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight, keeping the faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Do you notice the familiarity with chapter 1, verse 5? You've got the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. And he says here just a few lines later, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck. You know, addressing sin is never easy. It, and it's not your job or my job to go around with some pharisaical uh, on a box saying that's wrong and you're living a lie and you, just because you're, you think your identity is this, that's, you know, you're going to hell. Doesn't, scripture doesn't enjoin us to do that, number one. It doesn't help, number two. Sin is sin. So addressing sin has to be done in the right way. And Paul listen to me, is telling Timothy this is how you deal with this in Christ's church. That's why it's such a helpful letter. This is how you do it, Timothy. He says nothing about hating people in political office. He says nothing about having peaceful protests. He says nothing about writing your congressman or congresswoman. In fact, his answer is biblical and simple. What he is saying, if I can paraphrase it, is, Timothy, you're in a fight. 
It's a good fight, but you're in a fight. And I want you to stay in that fight. But as you fight, keep a good conscience. Now that's a gross paraphrase, but that's the emotion, what he's telling them. It's a fight, Timothy. It's a good fight. It's a hard fight. And I would put as a footnote, I hate fighting. Some are pugilists. Some of you like to fight. I don't like to fight. Never have. But Timothy, it's a fight. It's a good fight. You got to stay in a fight. But you better have a good conscience. You better do it with the outcome being love, not just being right. That's the problem in parenting. Sometimes we want to be right as a parent, not loving. Is there any person on the planet like your child who can drive you crazy? Interesting when your children go to other people's homes or if you have your children maybe babysit somebody else's kid. I, I can remember these as if it happened last night. We would take one of our children, our daughters, to babysit, and the parents would say, they were so great. They, the house was picked up. They washed the dishes. They swept the floor. I mean, I'm like, who? It wasn't my daughter. We've all had that experience. You know what's great about those illustrations is they know the right thing to do. That's what you need to learn. They may not do it when they're home, but they know the right thing they do to do because why? You taught them. You taught them. And when they become children of their own and get to pay their own light bill, it's the happiest day of your life. <laughs> you see, parenting is an ongoing illustration. Don't you wish, some of us you're over 50, 60, don't you wish you would have parented with the knowledge you have today when you were in your 20s? And this is not the guilt and regret sermon. I'm not trying to go there, but I'm, I'm just saying we learn. And that's when God gives you grandchildren because then you really understand what parenting is like. It's their problem, not yours. You get to just have fun with them. It's the best thing in life. I find it striking. Don't miss the language. I'm entrusting you with something, Timothy. I'm giving you some information that is completely 100% reliable on how you conduct yourself in the church of Jesus Christ. And it's a fight. You ever feel like you're fighting for your kids' souls when they were little? And that's how Paul felt with the son, the younger Timothy. Do it with a faith, with a good conscience, a sincere heart, etc. How often do you hear people say the Bible isn't relevant? The Bible was written a long time ago. It doesn't, it doesn't apply today. It's irrelevant. I mean, I've heard that so many times in my life. I remember hearing one of my professors said, you're not making the Bible relevant. The Bible is relevant. Your job is to explain the situation behind what people don't know when they look at a verse. That's your job. Let them see the big picture, which is my, my broken record, is you've got to know the context. You've got to know that Nero's in the background over here doing some really nasty things when Paul's writing this. This is not contextually void. There's something going on in Ephesus that affects everyone, and Paul's chief concern is the local church. Now, chapter 2, we have this incredible transition. And every time I read this, I, it, it stops me. Chapter 2, verse 1, first of all. Well, Paul's brilliant. He's a writer. He's a legal-minded, didactic person. His outlines are precise. They make sense. They unfold. There is a logic to his thinking. He's not random in storytelling. He's a st statistician. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions 
and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is, a good and accept, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Okay, this is our situation. Nero's breathing down our neck. Rome's breathing down our neck. We're in trouble. You could substitute the United States. You could substitute the government. You could substitute hate groups. You could substitute whatever you want. They're breathing down our neck. First thing you need to do, pray. What an unexciting answer. What a boring thing. What an ineffective use of my time. First of all, I urge. Same word he used in chapter 12 of Romans. I urge you therefore by the mercies of God present yourself a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God which is your pleasing service of worship. I urge you that in treaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings pray for those in authority. And this is an interesting little caveat. The word so that Therefore, so that, in order that, watch those phrases in Paul's literature especially. So that is a purpose or an explanation or a rationale or expanding something. Why in this case do I want you to pray for those in authority? Notice he said all men. But then he specifies especially those who are in authority for kings and so forth. Why? So that you might lead what? A quiet life tranquil life in godliness and dignity. If you pray for the people who are over you, overlords, Nero, that may well work to your benefit. Listen to Dwayne Litvin who writes on this. He says, uh, with Nero's growing resentment toward Christians which came to full bloom after the fire in Rome in July of AD 64, the general disintegration of the Roman Empire because of Nero's, he uses a big word here, prolifiguration or profligacy, which means wasteful spending, that he abuses his power, profligacy. Christians began to suffer persecution from the Roman authorities. Having recently been released from his Roman imprisonment, Paul was greatly aware of the deteriorating political atmosphere. Does that sound a little bit like maybe we could apply it today? I don't care who you voted for. You think our political atmosphere is healthy? You live on another planet. The vitriol is very interesting. He continues, he urged prayer for the salvation of all men, especially rulers, so that the stable, non-interfering environment of the previous days might be recovered. This is the minimum requirement if Christians are to live a peaceful, quiet life in all godliness and dignity. I'll beat this drum till I die. We are ineffective, repetitious in our prayer life. That reflects many things. That's not to guilt and shame you. That's to encourage you to get your house in order. That's to encourage you to get your budget in line. That's to encourage you to get back, you know, playing and practicing your instrument. Get back on whatever. You got to get back into the drills if you're an athlete. Prayer is foundational to the Christian life, and we have it as, oh, by the way, we say the same thing all the time. This morning I got up to get my coffee. Cindy had already beat me. She's sitting in her chair in the den. She's got her handbook to prayer open. We love, we love that little book. 
It's paint by number prayer. It's not the only way to do it. It's not the, there's lots of ways to do it. I need help so my prayers aren't meaningless and repetitious or verbose and meaning nothing. I'm not praying to impress anybody. I'm praying as a part of a relationship to the God of the universe who loves this sinful person named Michael. And I need to continue to align myself to him. What kind of husband am I? What kind of father am I? What kind of grandfather am I? What kind of friend am I? What kind of worker in the field am I? What kind of neighbor am I? How am I serving him? He gave me this life. I deserve hell. He gave me life. I deserve punishment. He gave me forgiveness. I am a steward of what he gave me. How am I using it? How are you using it? I love the word and I want to pray. The problem, I think, when I boil this down, the reason we don't pray, we really don't need God. You pray when you're desperate. When you have enough money in the bank, when your health is good, when your marriage is so-so, when your kids are so-so, when you like your job, when you got a four-wheel drive on an icy day, I don't need God. You take the props away, watch how diligent we get with God. I've said this for decades, the corollary is frightening. When the troubles of life come, we get busy with God. When life is easy streets, we take the hand off the tiller. I remember uh, our friend we've talked about many times, Jim, who's had two liver transplants and his daughter has the same disease and gone through two liver transplants. That's not like a kidney transplant. This is a whole other deal. And Jim tells the story of going through this whole process and any of you had surgery can identify how you go in and the day of you take your ring and your watch and finally your glasses, whatever it is, and you're naked as the day you were born and you got a little cloth over you and you throw some blankets on you and they're wheeling you down the corridor of life or death. He's going to go face a 14-hour surgery at a long time. And they're wheeling him down, and he's looking at the suspended ceiling, the fluorescent lights. He's already taken his wedding band off, his glasses, kissed his wife goodbye. He says, I got me and God. That's all I got. And I wake up, I wake up. If I don't, I don't. I'll be in a better place. But that's the corridor of life and death. And he talked about how close he felt to Jesus during that and then he said, Mike, when I started getting better and feeling better, I felt like I was losing what I have with Christ. And if you've been to those places, you know exactly what he means. But his insight was putting me to shame. And I'm going, this corollary, I don't like it. But apart from trouble, trials, and pains, and discouragements, and disformance in life, you and I don't need God. That's the cheery Michael Easley sermon. No charge. Paul is telling the younger Timothy, I want you to pray and treat God, bring request, and be thankful for all those in authority so that, as a byproduct, you might live a tranquil and quiet life with all godliness and dignity. That's a fight. That's fighting the good fight, Timothy. It's not going to be fun, Timothy. It's going to be hard. But it's a good fight. It's the right fight. If you're going to go fight, this is the fight you want to fight, Timothy. That's the courage you need. And hard times is when our faith matters. I've said it many times. We're the only group you can vilify without consequence. So will you and I fight the fight?
Let's look at some key topics just to mention them from the book. We won't unpack them, but quickly, he's going to talk about the roles of men and women, the qualifications for leadership, particularly elders and deacons. Uh, the key word there is going to be above reproach. We'll look at that again in Titus and a little bit in 1 Peter. The idea of above reproach is unimpeachable. We can't find anything on this person. He's going to give insights into Timothy's life on how to be a successful servant. And this is one thing the Christian community could learn a lot about. We talk about success, and, and we've adopted some business modeling, which isn't all bad, but you're a successful servant, not a king. And the nuance that he, Paul tells the younger Timothy on feeding himself and being disciplined and this whole line of things, he tells him what to do about how to be this example uh, treatment and care for widows, which I find remarkable about a culture and community out of Judaism that had a social system that was brilliant to take care of their own. And now in Christianity, the widows are being overlooked. And there are widows who are too young and they're entitled. Nothing new under the sun. I, I, I should do that. No, if you're young enough, go do this, go get a job, we would say. You're not ready to be on the roll, we would say. Nothing new. We think we're so sophisticated. Finally, verse 12 of chapter 4, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example, especially of those who believe. I love, 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 love this passage. Years ago when um, pastors were invited to speak at graduations and baccalaureates, I had this sort of stock back pocket message and I would use this verse. And um, pastors can't go near baccalaureates these days, but back, you know, like, like, like Lipman said, the, pray for the times former to Nero. Huh? But nevertheless, um, first of all, notice he says, prove yourself an example. The word example is the word tupos in Greek. And just so you understand type, how many of you know a real typewriter with a platen? If you don't, you won't understand this illustration. Computer printers, forget it. But a type, the platen was the roll thing you see on these old movies, you know, with the piece of paper. And the, the key would hit a ribbon, and the paper was between the ribbon and the platen. And it left a strike. It struck the ribbon that left an imprint of a K or whatever, and that ink was pressed into the paper. The type is not the type set. The type is the strike. It's the mark left behind. It's very nuanced, but it's very important. Timothy, I want you to be a mark left behind. Your speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself a mark left behind. When they look at you, they're going to say he was a person of speech, love, conduct, faith, and purity. So what's it look like? Speech is what you say. Conduct what you do. Love what you show. Faith what you believe. Purity, what you intend. You spend a whole week on those five, verse, five words. I want you to be an example in these things, Timothy, who's in his forest. This is why I disagree with Wilkinson and Boa in the front. Because he's not telling him he's failing as a young person. He's telling him, this is how you're an example to older people. You know, our culture has so changed in the last couple of decades. We used to esteem elderly. Now we mock them. We used to look up to men and women who were senior citizens or mentors or people in their 70s. Now we have no use for them. 
The 20-year-olds are writing all the screenplays that you're seeing on sitcoms and Netflix. Not the senior writers. The senior editor is a joke of a name with print or media or anything. They're young people that are running the world, which I'm not saying is terrible or wrong. It's just changed. In the first century, you honored your elders. In the Jewish churches and Jewish synagogues, you honor your elders. In deep Catholic communities, you honor your elders. Some of you come from a background where you honor your elders. You take care of them. I was in Nigeria many, many years ago, and they revered their elders, men and women both. They looked up to them. In this context, first century, Timothy's in a situation where these older people, they what? They know a lot. Sometimes they can be difficult. I have a friend who's in his late 70s, maybe he's 81 now. I get with him on occasion. He's a renowned name in these parts. And he can be a little ornery. I love him, but he can be a little ornery. And when I'm around him, I act like a 20-year-old, not a 64-year-old. Meaning, I'm respecting a man that's lived a lot more life than I have and trying to learn. Are things different? Sure. Are the main important things different? Not at all. And that's where the arrogance comes in. So how are you an example to people around you? What you say, what you do, what you show, what you believe, what you intend. If you camp on these five words this week and think, ask yourself a simple question. The elder statesman Apostle Paul has told a younger Timothy who's telling you and me. Your speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. Show yourself an example. That's pretty common sense shoe leather theology. Would people look at you and say, that man, that woman is an example of what it means to follow Christ. What they say, what they do, what they show, what they believe, what they intend. Early in uh, my little career as a pastor, first church I served, I always had mentors, you know, the old story about you know, Barnabas and Apollo and Timothy. And so in those days I was the Timothy looking for Apollo and Barnabas. And I chased older men and learned a lot from them. All my life I've chased older Christian men to learn from them. And there's none that are perfect, but you're going to learn ten things from this guy you wouldn't learn elsewise. And so forth. And so each one of them brings something to the table. And I've just been one of those tenacious people that I know what I don't know and I need help. So I've never been afraid to ask older, smarter people to help me out here. And it's enriched my life. I mean, it's immeasurable. Well, in a weird kind of way, First and Second Timothy were my mentors. And in my 20s and 30s, I spent so much time studying these two letters, thinking about the elder statesman Apostle Paul writing a letter to this younger man, Timothy, who at that time I was younger than him, about how to conduct yourself in the house of God, in the church of God, and how to be the man you're supposed to be. And I come back to these verses and all of a sudden I'm 28 years old again in Grand Prairie, Texas in a little mobile trailer office that had quarter-inch styrofoam and pre-finished paneling. And when, the, when it rained we had to go home because you couldn't hear the phone ring. And Paul and Timothy were leaning over my shoulder. Oh, the years I spent chasing visions and missions and cell groups and metagroups and small groups and and church plants and, you know, multiplication and church growth seminars. And then I became one of the people that proliferated that garbage. And um, I got to a point where I said, I'm not going to be on that side of the box anymore. I'm going to try and be an example. In your speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, be an example.
It's his church. This is his church, and you're part of it. Are you an example? Are you leaving a mark behind? Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Chad Cates. Thank you.